This week's episode of the Screenwriter's Rant Room is brought to you by avgearguy.com. If you have any photos or documents that you need to scan or videotapes or audio tapes or film rolls that you need to import into your computer, check out avgearguy.com. If you mention the name of this podcast, when you order, you'll get 5% off and a portion of your order will go to help support the rant room. All these formats degrade over time and are sitting ducks in the case of fire or theft. Why not convert it all to digital? All of your memories could be stored safely on the cloud or on a hard drive that fits in your pocket. AVGearGuy.com has over 30 years of experience with all kinds of media, digital and analog, and they can accept orders from anywhere in the United States. Don't forget to mention the Screenwriter's Rant Room and get 5% off your order. For more details, visit their website at avgearguy.com. I'm going to say what I feel and I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Rant Room. Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing, the doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind in the business, got me stressed in the rent room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerds got no time for no caca. Sass in class, yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Red Room. So we're back with the bottle episodes because the coronavirus has left us where we can't even go outside. But that's how it's going to be, I guess. The coronavirus has just put us all in a weird position. Um, I'm just contemplating what's going to happen with the theatrical movie business. I'm hoping that everyone wants to go out to see movies in the theater after they've been cooped up inside to watch stuff or just at their fingertips. Um, But I don't know. I think that when all those movie companies put everything that was in the mix of coming out uh, out on the digital platforms just because they had spent the millions, hundreds of, I don't know, whatever, 20, 30, 40 million dollars on advertising. They didn't want to have that wasted. We'll see what people do with that. And and if people go out to watch the theaters, uh, again, once we can go outside without any kind of uh, persecution. It's just because you got to say to yourself, um, what really is the value of going to the movies? As opposed to watching it at home. Uh, you know, I'm one who've talked about the power of cinema and how cinema has like kind of supplanted a certain type of religious experience in the 20th century. For how people go to the movies, how people thought about movies, how people have expectations about what movies are about and what they can do for you. Uh, now a lot of that has dried up in the last 20 years but there is that value of what films can do I mean every time I watch a movie on the Criterion channel 
I get a sense of like, God, they made this movie. Like, how'd they make this movie? Because there are kind of things that you just don't see uh, being made anymore. And they probably weren't even being made that back when they did come out. There's just kind of these rare gems of cinema. It's just rare artistic expression. And that's what I think is going to be difficult to continue uh, now that the theaters might all be gone because who knows if they'll get the right stimulus money and you, you know the people who are working there and are they going to go out of business and you know who knows who knows it's but it doesn't look good the only thing that might be interesting is is that because the paramount decrees got repealed in late november early december of last year maybe these companies like universal and sony and disney stuff like that they just buy up amc and regal cinemas and stuff like that and then they're not sharing any of the revenue uh they're getting all the concession money and all the box office money it's all coming to the you know to the uh to the studios you know like those i guess there's only what four of them now well you have disney columbia sony universal warner brothers paramount i guess it's those five because Weinstein's is gone um, and Fox is now part of Disney uh, MGM like never really got it going you know like MGM and Orion and UA and all that and the stuff with uh, and Lionsgate are all I, I, I don't know what what's going to happen to them um, it's hard to say. You know, there's so many great movies that, that, that those little smaller companies put out for their nimbleness. That's just going to be tricky going forward. I feel. I mean, there's, there's the thing to lament is the lack of original voices, um, because you know how it is at at Netflix. I mean, yeah, they put stuff on and they just buy up a lot of stuff, but they don't really advertise anything and things don't have the same kind of weight. It's a, it's a Netflix release. I mean, it kind of had this kind of buzz of like, who made this kind of like outrageous piece of cinema? You know, and then that's just if they're, if they're just going to buy your product. If you're going to make something with them, I believe the way they work is you actually have to have a producer who's made something with them already for them to to want to finance and, and buy a movie from you. So I just, it, there might be a stifling of artistic voices um, because it'd be harder to make these pieces of independent cinema where you could get them in the theater or get them and see the, the meaning of that is what happens at the film festivals because film festivals were kind of always places where people would buy these little films like Neon and A24 and you know and Annapurna would pick up stuff to put out uh, as these small little releases and hope for some sort of breakout smash and there's always one breakout smash every year or one or two so there, there's there's always some sort of like validity in that business but that might go away might go away like we'll see uh, once the next film festival season comes into play obviously Khan's gonna get disrupted and delayed probably tell you ride to maybe even Venice so which is putting us deep into August uh, but, but we'll see what's gonna happen speaking of great movies to watch I have a interesting piece of uh Double header, double feature that I saw the other night. That, you, that that anyone who's really involved in having a career in the theatrical arts should watch. You should watch all that jazz and the red shoes. 
the Red Shoes is available on the Criterion channel. I think all that jazz is too. I have the Criterion D, uh, DVD Blu-ray, so I just watched it there. Because I wanted to watch those because of the obsessive commitment of artists who will break themselves um, over their pursuit of their artistic dreams. That's kind of the theme that runs through both of those. All That Jazz is a Bob Fosse film from 79? Yeah, 79, because it actually beat Apocalypse Now for Best Editing that year at the Oscars. But it's about Bob Fosse film. It stars Roy Scheider as uh, Frank Gideon, who is the stand-in for Bob Fosse. And Bob Fosse, if you don't remember, he was in that movie miniseries on uh, Hulu FX recently called Fosse Verdun. And uh, he was like a Broadway uh, director, choreographer, who directed a couple handful of interesting movies, uh, all that jazz being the most impressive. It's it's semi-autobiographical to a certain degree. Um, It's about a man who's putting on a Broadway show and editing a film, and he's trying to juggle those two projects as well as as juggle his combustuous personal life. Um, It's just a really, really good movie, and it dramatizes the struggle that film artists go through. Um, And then Red Shoes, you know, it's, it's a movie that's, Based, in, I mean, inspired by the Hans Christian Andersen uh, fable or fairy tale, whatever it is, fairy tale um, about you know these magical red shoes that cause someone to dance to death, this woman to dance to death, and that's kind of the commitment that is required of the woman uh, Moira Shear in the film. You know, she's asked early on, you know, why do you want to dance? Someone asks her, and she's like, why do you want to breathe? is what her response is which is kind of an interesting response if you think about it um, that's a really really good movie too it's one of these films by the archers if you don't know who the archers are you don't know enough about cinema so go look them up uh, I don't need to tell you um, I'll just maybe put a, 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 the Criterion trailer in the show notes for both of those films um, but what else what else is it you need to talk about as I'm writing the last uh, two weeks since we last recorded, uh, I've been listening to this composer named uh, Johan Johansson. He's dead. He died two years ago now, um, abruptly. I think he was like 48 or 49 when he died. So it was kind of a total tragic loss to the artistic community, not just film composers, because he had some interesting scores or or interesting music that was outside of his scores, particularly this one called Orfei that he did that's on Deutsche Gramophone. But, you know, he wrote the score for Sicario and for Arrival and Prisoners. So he worked with Denis Denis, uh, Villeneuve on his early films. And he wrote the score for The Theory of Everything. I had been listening to those scores off and on the last several years. I think they're just fantastic kind of like tone poems. But he did a score for a movie called Mary Magdalene starring Rooney Mara and Chiwito Ejiofor. And that's what I've been listening to the last... But pretty much the last week, writing something very philosophical, uh, action film or action p- p- TV pilot project, but it's still very philosophical of what it is. And I, that, that score has been giving me an opportunity just to be more expressive of my own um, desires about what I want to put in the, the piece. 
uh, it's interesting, you know, how you think about what you're going to put into a story thematically, the themes that you want to I- explore. And that's what, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's something that I think will really take a piece and really elevate it. And a lot of people, you know, they always talk about putting in theme, but theme is so important to how you're going to stage the the pilot or the feature. Like, how are you going to stage a lot of things? Like, theme and character are what determine your structure. You know, it's like you just happen to know how to create these things and if you're good at storytelling you'll be able to make be able to make the structure work but you got to know the character and you got to know the themes and how those are going to work in tandem to give you this, the movie that you're writing or the pilot that you're writing you know it's interesting it's because it's a craft thing it's a craft you know there was a guy he's got a youtube channel his name is d for darius um i'll put a link to his just main channel in the show notes um but i just was happening to came across one the other day and he was talking about the difference between craft execution versus a great idea you know and the whole thing is the great idea is doesn't really have a lot of value a lot of people think it does but it doesn't because it doesn't mean anything unless you have craft that's even better than the idea to therefore make it great to therefore flesh it out you know, I was talking to someone the other day and I was kind of like, you know, thinking about it as if it's a marble block. And your idea is, oh, I want to create Michelangelo's David, the new version of that. That's my idea. Okay, so that's the idea. But your craft is what you use to carve it out of the, the, the marble block. And how well you can do the intricate carving and the details and understand the foreshortening and understand like how something is going to look uh, from the perspective. You know, because the thing about the Davis statue is it's designed to be looked at from below. Like if you look at it from the top, it has a different kind of feel than when you look at it when you're up close and you're looking at looking up at it. Like it feels different to, uh, to the viewer. Because that's how Michelangelo, he wanted you to look at it. It's, it's, it's a huge, huge fucking, what, 15, I think 15 feet or maybe 18 feet statue. And, you know, it's not designed for you to be 20, 30, 40 feet back. Uh, it's like he did that too with the Pieta. Like the Pieta is like, which is, you know, that one where he's, um, uh, Jesus is dead. He's just been pulled off the cross. And, uh, and 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 Mary, his mother, is holding him. And it's like everything is kind of weirdly elongated when you look at it from like a straight-on point of view. But again, it was designed to be posted higher than the human, you know, the six, eight feet. It's supposed to be higher than, I think it's supposed to be set up to be set eight feet above. So when you look at it from, you know, it's eight feet above you and looking up at it, the proportions seem more accurate. Uh, that's how, that's how he understood the craft. That's how important craft is to take an idea and to really shape it in a way so that when you look at it from the right perspective, it looks amazing and it fulfills all your um, desires that you want to see. And that's where you have the difference between a great idea and great craft. Because see, if you have a great idea, and a lot of people have great ideas, but 
but it gets destroyed by mediocre craft. I mean, everyone's guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. I was guilty of it for a very long time. You And it's a difficult position to be to get into where you know how to make your craft really, really sing. Craft is like everything. Um because you can like then look at material that's not working and know why and then be able to like to, to offer those solutions and there's so much of that going on in Hollywood um, it's one of the things I found interesting is having this discussion with my friend Steve Bagatorian because um, he teaches screenwriting every once in a while and he's uh, he's a very very fascinating screenwriter always has these really really rich ideas that uh, someone who writes and directs I'm always curious to like to want to like direct one of his projects he has this one about um, how do you, I don't even want to tell it because I know he listens to the podcast but about this uh, something to do with aging and it's such a dope idea I just it's such a dope idea but anyway with Steve and I were talking about you know what they teach you at uh, the the like UCLA and USC and stuff like that. You know they they're they're really always trying to get you to 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 write something original, and you know with the with the weird perversion of thinking, oh, you're gonna write that and sell that, but it's so rare that the original idea gets sold and then made in Hollywood. If you're solely a screenwriter, you know that's more the purview of the the indie world and of doing. Um, and you're writing to direct something and you almost have to know how to write if you want to direct and then break in through to the Hollywood system or just break in or, or just break into making movies unless you write but the thing is is that you know we were saying why don't they teach you a class on rewriting and they, you know, they do the thing and then they kind of like mimic it the way they really do in the industry like make it very much the way the industry works so that you can get used to that as a writer because that's how your craft works if you if you can you if your craft is really really strong you can go in and look at material that met, they might have had a good idea and then wasn't done right and they but they liked the idea and they needed to be you know it needs to be elevated so what you know like imagine if you had you did a class five people and there was a, a, a screenplay that needed to be, you know, like reworked. Um, and then everybody had to go and pitch what their revision plan would be. And then the best, you know, pitch on how you're going to revise the script is that's the person who gets to do that. And then everyone else has to be the, you know, uh, um, it kind of act like the development executives in the, you know, then the teacher would be like the producer, the main producer to sign off on the thing. And and that would be more indicative of what the, um, uh, like, like a class would be on writing. Because that's how you really know the craft and if you could because if I could give you some script and say hey this is a cool idea but it doesn't work how would you make it work how would you take this script and fix it you know and 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 maybe you have three ideas and you leave the in the classes six people and then you know 
uh, and you just you know you, and and the person who signs up and wins the first one can't bid on the next you know next two trips and you know blah 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 so that way maybe you know half the class really gets to work on something um, and the other class has to kind of like you know be like writers who don't get the job when they pitch they mad about it but they still can learn something by seeing how someone else's process is and then you know then again them being the development executive they might not be cool about it because they didn't get a chance to do the writing but that's what a lot of the job is so that's the importance of craft you know I remember what's his name was talking about this Chris McQuarrie in this episode of The Moment Brian Koppelman's The Moment and he was saying that both of them were saying that you get scripts or, or that they get scripts and they get to rewrite them at this insane amount of money because the script is not quite there and it needs that last bit of work to take it so they can go get the green light or go get actors to then try to get the green light you know and, and you got to know how to do a lot of different things um, a lot of things to get a script that's the point where someone is going to want to make it um, what else can we talk about today man just uh, oh you know I'll talk about something interesting Bianca Sams shout out to Bianca Sams um, she and I were talking the other day and she was kind of I don't know think she was chiding me is what she was doing about <laughs> she, she's a TV writer she writes for Charm and she's a playwright she's a fantastic playwright um, as well as a successful TV writer um but we were talking about like how you cover set as a, as the writer, and then what's in that? What's the importance of doing that with the um, relationship you have with the director? Because I guess I had said on one of the last bottle episodes how you know you can come in and just as a director come in and just start making wholesale changes to the script, and that's actually not true. You can't do that, and you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't even attempt to do that. Um, you should be ha- having those questions about scenes early on um, in like tone meetings and stuff like that because that's where you can you can get the writer to listen to you uh, you know about the something that doesn't make sense or something that they, that they could be worked out stronger um, if you know how to do that as a writer um Who's who's now directing, or a director who's just skilled at the game, and they know their craft the best. But that's you know, it's just a question of you know, like knowing when to talk about when a scene doesn't work, or maybe dialogue doesn't work, uh, and you know that from having enough experience from working on set and working with actors and seeing how uh, the dynamics are going to be. You know, because a lot of times. You know what I was thinking. I was talking about in the episode was like I had to make a a, a a deletion of some lines on the set, and thinking about it back in now because it's a project that I'm almost done editing with. I realized that it was like the reason why I, I needed to, ha- to have some lines deleted is that is that the behavior of the actor in the moment said the same thing that the lines were saying so therefore you have like a double beat and that's where I was like oh how, how we can make the change you know and it was obvious and it was something that I had pitched to them on the fly said hey can we see if this works and if it doesn't work 
then let's just go, we can go back to what's written or find another solution. But let me just, you know, do that. Um, I just wanted to clarify that again, because I don't know who's listening to this in terms of what's their experience with writing and directing and working on a television set and uh, just just collaborating with somebody else on material um, because it's such a big process of knowing how to collaborate in a way that everyone who feels appreciated or gets their proper respects, you know, because it's not your job to be uh, directing directing something your way when you're working on a television show because you're playing inside someone else's sandbox. So you just have to be aware of that and know how not to step on people's toes. Like that's the big thing in the whole industry is, is knowing not how to step on people's toes. Um, and unfortunately, you, that's kind of like a case-by-case basis because you don't know who or how or, or when someone is going to do that or what someone's going to take offense out of or what someone's, you know, like idiosyncrasy. I mean, there were some things that Bianca was telling me um, that just ha- had me laughing. But it's how it is, you know. Anyway, shout out to Bianca Sams. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Maybe we'll talk about what I've been watching under house arrest. Not that I'm under true house arrest, but I mean, we're kind of under house arrest with the COVID-19 situation. I just wish they could have figured this. I just, Trump could have figured this out and took it seriously. Could have taken it really seriously back in Davos days. When he, when he knew, they knew. They were told what was going to happen if they didn't get their ass in line and go ahead with it. And he didn't care. Just didn't care. What he cared about more was he didn't want the all, like all the gains that he got from the stock market as as if that represents the economy, and it, it hasn't since it was decoupled. I want to say, you know, theory I have back in the nineteen eighty seven uh, Black Monday. That's when the stock market got decoupled from the economy, but all but but mainly because of what happened in the eighties, and that was kind of like the last moment of it. Uh, is you know the rise of the investor class of people because uh, most people don't have money in the stock market. They might have money in there through four hundred one k's and stuff like that, but mo but that but 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 even that's rare. And you know, just look at all the statistics about how are people people ready for retirement? They're not, and they're not because they don't have the money to do that. And and you need a lot of money to be in your just to be investing in the stock market in a way that you can take the gains that, that Trump was so happy about. But now he's lost all those gains. And, you know, I, I mean, it's who, who's it affecting? You, you think it's affecting everybody, but it's because the way they have been, a, just, the media is so slavish reporting with the Dow Jones, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ's like scores are. But unless you have money, that's tied up in it, and and also a, a lot of money tied up in it. You not no ten grand. You need like you know fifty, eighty, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand to really be affected. Yeah, because if you you know if you have ten, twenty, thirty grand in there, and you lose twenty percent of it, so what? Just keep saving. I mean, if you've been saving, then boom. If you haven't been saving, and that's why you've been there anyway. That's that's really not a lot of money. So, like. I mean, in terms of what it's for, what's it for? A retirement account? 20 grand is not going to save no bun for a retirement. You're going to burn through that in like a few months. 
you know, if you're retired. So it's like having no money in the stock market. But since we are under lockdown, you know, I guess there was some meme that Joe Wilson was telling me about today. Where it was like, I've watched Netflix. Like that was the meme. Like motherfucker went through all that shit that's available for you to watch on Netflix. Which I'm sure some people are doing. So people just, you, I mean, like, why not? Like, why not just be watching shit show to show to show to show? Just, just boom, boom. I mean, it's, you know, as the people are doing with that damn Tiger King thing, which I am not watching. I watched half the first episode. And I just was like, I don't need to watch this. So this stuff for me to watch that's more entertaining for what I'm looking for. I mean, yeah, those people are crazy and 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 very crazy and 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 interesting to kind of look at and they're you know sociopaths and what have. That's that's the wrong word. They're just um, you know their psychic states are just really fascinating to a degree. Uh, but not enough for me to want to watch. Maybe I could watch. I said to myself, look, if this was an hour long or a two hour long doc, maybe I'd watch it all. But it's like seven, eight episodes. So I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for that. Uh, so I started watching Black Sales, which I know is over. But I don't know why that show didn't get talked about enough. It's pretty fascinating. I've watched three episodes. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. Um... I'm disappointed there's not enough, you know, I feel like the the, the pirate, pirate trade is, the pirate world has been not portrayed right. I just feel like there'd be more Africans and, you know, people from the Caribbean who would be part of those, those ships and stuff like that. Uh, I don't really know. I don't think anyone knows. I think the story about him is not, we're just, we're not, I don't think we know. I think we're told stuff that's not been massaged to fit a narrative that's maybe not necessarily true. But Black Sales is really good. It's the whole first season is free on Amazon Prime, so that's why I was watching it. Um, also on Amazon Prime, uh, I was I was rewatching Strike Back season three. I love that show, Strike Back. It's just one of my it was one of my favorite shows. No one watched. One of those shows on Cinemax like that and Hunted and the Nick and Outcast that no one just watched. I don't even know why. Um, I guess maybe Cinemax still had too much of a brand problem with Skinemax that it was just hard to get people to realize they were doing really high quality, really, really high quality shows. And outside of Strike Back, which was a, a show co-financed by the, by the Brits, I don't think anything they that they did did more than two seasons. They just probably weren't getting enough viewers. But, you know, like The Nick was still by far one of the top shows in the last 10 years. Top, top shows. No one talks about it. It doesn't get on those lists. It's always like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and The Wire. And, you know, and now Watchmen is going to be on that list. And I don't think that Game of Thrones will be on that list anymore. Uh, or maybe it will. It's just an interesting thing. But, but The Nick, watch it. Um, I'm watching a show called Devs, which is on FX. Uh, it's by Alex Garland. Alex Garland, who, if you don't know him, he's got famous. I remember reading a book of his called The Tesseract. Maybe God, like thirty years ago now. Um, it's really it won't be that long. Like Twenty five years ago, it was really really good. But he wrote The Beach. Uh, he wrote Twenty Eight Days Later. He wrote the 2012 version of Judge Dredd. Uh, which I, the rumor is that he had to come in and help with the editing of that, the 
the director fell out with the producers and he was responsible for shepherding the movie through post-production which allowed him to then go ahead and direct Ex Machina uh, which you know when he did Annihilation last year which now is, is why we have Devs Devs is great it's this you know uh, Silicon Valley uh, mystery uh, tech world mystery obviously but it's really really interesting uh, it's got a really interesting tone to it I think that's what's uh, what's his name Nick Offerman is in it and he just plays like some savant kind of like a not a Steve Jobs type I don't know if there's anyone you know I don't know about the players in Silicon Valley outside of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and, you know and Zuckerberg and like what they're really like and who's got whatever but it's a really fascinating show and I I want to talk about that uh, but speaking of Judge Dredd because I just brought that up uh, Brandon Easton who's been on the show and who's a really interesting writer and an interesting personality he wrote on Jeff Thorne's um, Black Panther's Quest and he wrote on Agent Carter uh, he did a Judge Dredd comic book that just came out uh, this past week so that's the March 24th uh New Comics Wednesday, so it's still available. You can get it on Comixology. That, that's where I got it because I couldn't go out to the store to get it. Probably didn't even ship out to any stores, uh, which sucks for him um, in terms of people just holding it because they should hold his book. But I think I, I want to say he was saying he's the first African American to do a Judge Dredd story, and it's called False Witness. I think I'm sorry. I'll put it in the show notes, but it's something witness like. Not mute witness, but uh, but it's a really interesting story, and it's really interesting to see a, a black guy give his spin on, you know, Judge Dredd and Mega City One, and that kind of really fascinating science fiction. Um, so shout out to Brandon Easton on that. Uh, oh, what did I watch the rest of? Which I shouldn't have done, but I did. Uh, the Mandalorian. Which I know that that uh, Linnell White wants to come on and talk about that show. Um, I you know I watched four episodes and was like I just can't get into this. And then, but I watched the final four because I have that whole thing that I do where I feel like you can always misinterpret something that you've seen that the public is really excited about. Um, it could be the mood you're in, like interesting expectations you have, a, a lot of things that could make something not hit the way that it should. And though, so then, you know, if a lot of people are talking about something, it's worth taking a look at a second time around. Not the Tiger King, though. I'm not going to do that with that. Just believe me, even though I said, just, I'm not going to talk about it. Too many people are talking about social media. And, and I, I, I see they're only watching it because they're, they're shut in. I don't know if we'll get the same talk if people weren't shut in. But anyway, back at The Mandalorian, you know, the final two hours of that is what it was, those four episodes, didn't really win me over again. And even though I was, I was wanting it to, um, you know, I was giving it a so much more opportunity to win me over. And it didn't. I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, those half-hour episodes and watching who was behind it, it's just not, not, I'm not saying they did anything bad, but it's just like I realized, oh, at half-hour, and one of the key creatives on there is, um, he's he made his bones 
uh, writing on the Star Wars cartoons, like the Clone Wars and stuff like that. And that's what I think is what caught me on it, is that that's, those half-hour things, they just feel like live-action cartoons. Now, what's wrong with a live-action cartoon? Well, nothing intrinsically. But then I just realized something a couple of weeks ago, a few months ago. I guess it was after I saw The Rise of Skywalker. <clears throat> I realized that I can't call myself a Star Wars fan. I can't call myself a Star Wars fan of that universe. And I say that because I only like two of the nine films. You know, I do like the Star Wars story films, uh, you know, Rogue One and Solo, better than the second and third trilogy than than any films that are in there. Um, And I think it has to do with the fact that I don't think, and this is what The Mandalorian why it didn't do it for me. Bounty Hunter, ex-Bounty Hunter, is that really subject matter that works well as a cartoon? And a cartoon in terms of tone. Um, Because Star Wars, this is the thing about Star Wars, right? So Star Wars came out like 43 years ago. And the people who made Star Wars a global phenomenon, which which I will say were people who who originally were able to watch the first and the second film in the theater. So those people of of that age bracket are, uh, they're probably close to 50 years old now. They're they're at the, the youngest 50, at the oldest 70. And it's like, the movies still stay, they aim at a 10-year-old. And that, I think, is what is, has been the issue with them for me, is that as I got older, I wanted the stories to evolve and to be more mature, in a sense. And maybe space opera doesn't need to be mature, but it can be. And then the thing about it is, is that, you know, like my favorite version of Star Wars or my favorite film in it is The Empire Strikes Back. I love that movie so much. It's so well done. It's so smartly done for a sequel. And um, but that movie, it like did the least business. It did the least business of of all the films. Uh, and, and and even if you look at this, you know the second trilogy. If I've read something about this, I saw this the other day. It might be totally somewhat wrong with this, but I know the original trilogy it, it did the least it did the least money. And I think that with adjusted money, it did the least money for for the whole like nine films. And it's because that's the movie that is the most adult of the nine films. And same with. Rogue One is a pretty adult film for what it's about. Um, and I think that Lucas saw that he didn't get the bang that he wanted for that second film because it, it got too dark. It got too heavy. It dealt with themes about betrayal and and like and 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 unspoken love and you, you know and sense of like and sense of self senses of self actualization there's there's all those big grand themes that are in that second film that aren't really in the rest of the movies you know he like he 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 pivoted when he went back into return of the jedi 
squarely aimed at for at the ten year old, so you can get more toys and stuff like that, and Ewoks have been there and things like that. Like you know, I mean, yes, there was rumors there to be Wookies, but he didn't need to go to a Wookiee planet. He could have gone to any planet that that just people you know, and then you know whatever it is, they could have been monkey type of things. By making them like these little teddy bears, he was like, I'm going to be able to sell stuff sell toys and get kids to watch this because I bet you kids got frightened by what happens in um, uh, Empire Strikes Back because even like in I can't remember which one the the, the latest trilogy where Rey gets captured and she's like being tortured like she's not tortured the same way that Harrison Ford is Han Solo was tortured in in that uh, in Cloud City so it's different it's just it's, it's less Intense overall, like all the movies are less intense, and that's kind of where I feel like I can't really be a Star Wars fan. It's a controversial statement, but that's why because because the movies didn't evolve, you know, like over like forty years, they stayed stagnant with the storytelling tone, and despite all the you know great visual effects and the great teams of creators and stuff like that there still was a box that they're playing in that that you know stretched far with empire and then contracted uh tonally and it never really got stronger than that um you know because they had like really strong themes and other kind of space opera stuff like robotech has really strong and 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 more mature themes and like that particularly in Mac, the later episodes of Macross and all of the masters and stuff like that. There's pretty interesting, strong themes in uh, the new generation as well. So it's like that was a series that like grew up and got older as the series kept going. And that's, and that's, that's my kind of theory about Star Wars, why the, my expectations are were constantly being subverted by what they're putting out there. That's just my expectations. That's a, so I'm not even saying that the movies are bad or anything like that. Uh, it's just it's just like I, like I wanted something different from them. So I don't know. Last thing I'll talk about before I'm gonna get out of here because it's been 40 minutes and I'm getting thirsty. Uh, and although I have been drinking, <laughs> I'm watching this. That's beer, not water. Um, what am I reading? Because it's you know because because reading is important too. Like while you're uh, staying hold up, I'm, I'm I'm reading a really interesting book called uh, "Winners Take All" about the the elite charade of doing good with all that money. It's, it's kind of like an indictment on th- on philanthropists and how they are they feel that by the, the main thing is. They feel there's an opportunity problem in America, not an inequality problem. And the and the reason why they, you know, because it feels better for them, because the inequality problem means that the system is really rigged in a way that's not right. And the fact that they were able to create all this extractive wealth, um, which again I was saying is has to do with the, that's the creation of the, share, the shareholder class. Um, that extractive wealth has, and then puts them in a position where, you know, government still has a responsibility for stuff, but the private sector is what makes the rules. They don't want to pay taxes, they don't pay taxes. You know, what is the effect on that? It means that that public schools get weak. So does the investor class care? Does the people, these philanthropists care? No. Philanthropists don't give money to public schools. They give money to private charter schools. Who can afford to go to private charter schools? 
not the kids who are, who are forced to go to public schools that have been criminally defunded and underfunded for the last 30, 40 years. So that's a really fascinating book. I'm also finally getting a chance to read, I don't know if I'm going to get into this, but I'm, gonna, I'm reading it, um, Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, the first volume called Swan's Way. It's like 600 pages, which isn't what... Uh, is daunting to me, you know, because the Game of Thrones books were all like, like eight hundred, nine hundred thousand pages. Um, it's that this is like once it's like there's five volumes in this, so you're look. I'm looking at like you know like thirty. <laughs> I don't know. Is that that's like that's like it's three thousand pages I got to read. It's a lot. Maybe it's more than that. They, they said it's like it's, it's almost a million and a half words. So that's like a shit ton of fucking writing. So I'm reading that. Um, and I'm going to read Stendhal's The Charter House of Parma um, and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. All like really, really old classics and stuff. There are some new books that I want to read. I'm, 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 uh, like, I want to read uh, Murakami's um, IQ84, but that's like 1,200 pages. So I don't know if I'm going to get to that before uh, we get out of here. Plus, i got to buy it. Um, you know, and I don't know if I want to. I guess I can get it on the Kindle. But anyway, so that's what I've been reading. Um, all you know, fascinating stuff. You know, I mean, I'm not necessarily like reading scripts to be reading scripts um, now. Uh, I'm reading scripts for some people, but I'm not just. I don't know if I'm going to watch the movie. Maybe I just watch. The, I just I do want to watch the movie, but I don't know if I want to spoil it by reading the script. But um, I don't know. So that's it. That's it for this uh, first. COVID-19 bottle episode. Shout out to Hilliard and Lisa for giving me the opportunity to do this one more time. Uh, if you have any questions, reach out to Hilliard uh, at screenwritersrr at gmail.com uh, If not, I think that, that might be right, that might not be right, but otherwise go to screenwritersrr.com Yes, screenwritersrr.com is the page, the official page of the show. Uh, the show notes are up there in a different form than if you get it on the podcast. There's like, you know, the last maybe 12, 15, 20 episodes have all of their, their own individual pages um, with, you know, their trailers and stuff and everything that we've been, t- that we talk about in the episode is up there. But you can also support the show through the Patreon. Um, I'm trying to get the shop up and running because there's a Criterion Collection coffee mug that everyone probably would, would want to buy it's really dope um, that that's up there and the Rant Room t-shirts um, it, I'm hoping to have that set up in the next day or two so maybe by the time you listen to this you can go to the shop on the page and buy some stuff the, the t-shirt will be uh, $16.95 on the shop as opposed to where it is now on Cotton Bureau at $29.95 so that's what we're going to do so if you guys want to buy one which you would love uh, please do that or support the show on a Patreon I know certain people, you know, uh, have been, I'm behind on some of the reading for that, but I'm getting through the reading descriptions for that people who wanted coverage. So I'm doing that. Um, you can follow the show on Facebook, on Twitter at Screenwriters RR. Uh, you can follow me at uh, Unauthorized CBD. Um, but I don't know where else you can get me. Oh, yeah, on Instagram too. 
Um, but you can, you know, ask me questions as well. If you want to ask me questions, then you could. There's a contact form on the website, so you could go to the website and ask me a question. Um, so, but it, but it, but it, I, that might go to Hilliard. I can't remember how that's set up. But either way, if you want to ask me questions, you know, t- tell me something I'm wrong. Uh, or you, or that you've a quibble about. I remember there was someone who was chipping because I liked the marriage story and I liked Scarlett Johansson's performance in that. And I was, it was like, what are you doing, Chris? There was someone chipping on me about that. I can't remember who it was. Well, if I do, I don't want to say the person's name is because I don't remember. Anyway, but you know, there's there's ways to talk to me and tell me this is the wrong format and I'm talking too much and saying too much crazy, you know, stuff that's uh, that's. What's what's the word I I always say to Ronell? Self winching, self winching behavior. Um, but maybe I'm not doing that. Uh, like we'll see, we'll see what happens. Anyway, thank you for listening, and we will talk soon. I don't know how soon that will be. I guess there'll be another brown episode next week. There might be one in the middle of this week. This week, so maybe I'll just have something new to say. Um, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. Have a good uh, time listening. Thank you very much. And uh, signing off. I'ma say what I feel. And I promise to keep it real. Welcome to the Red Room. Well, you gotta be a rider Till your fears are diminishing The doubts are behind ya It's hard to grind And the business got me stressed In the rent room We let that shit up off our chest You know the street nerd Has got no time for no caca Sass in class Yes, that's Mr. Bolakaja Never have to guess When you're listening to Hillier He gon' bring more game Than a shark playing billiards It's all about the crap of screenwriting It's exciting When you turn an outline Into something enlightening Your pen and words Are like bullets in a gun Write what you feel Say what you want Welcome to the rent room